Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. I'm Sarah Eisen on day 171 of the coronavirus crisis. Tonight, the strategy for stopping a new spread of COVID-19, and will it be enough to stop a larger outbreak? Cases on the rise. It's induced by us opening up early and moving on from the problem before the problem has moved on from, from us. Tonight, how to slow the spread. The situation is getting so bad, doctors in L.A. are calling for the state to reopen surge hospitals. Tonight, the man leading the charge. And one area where things have gotten so bad, businesses are being forced to shut down for a second time. This CNBC special report begins now. Here's Sarah Eisen. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. We'll start tonight with the growing number of cases and hospitalizations in the U.S. Here are just some in the southeast. Alabama, Georgia, and Florida have all seen hospitalizations at least double since their states reopened. Out west, cases in Texas still rising. Oklahoma's hospitalizations also rising since the state reopened. Arizona's hospitalizations have tripled, and cases are up more than 400 percent. Several months ago, when the crisis was just hitting China, before it was even clear to most people that the U.S. was going to get hit, here's what Dr. Gottlieb said right here on CNBC's special report. New York City might be a hotspot, closing things like malls and theaters in places like Seattle, canceling large events in places where we know there's active community transmission. I think that makes eminent sense. CNBC contributor and former FDA chief Scott Gottlieb is back with us tonight. Good evening. How do we slow this new spread, Dr. Gottlieb? Well, look, we need to find the source of the spread. We're not going to shut down the country again. Um, There's no appetite for that among the people or the political class. And so what we need to do, and we shouldn't have to because we have better testing in place, um, better case-based interventions, the ability to target where the infection is spreading. We have the tools to do that now. We just need to find where it's spreading. So if you look at Texas, for example, 24% of the hospitalizations in Texas now are people between the ages of 20 and 29 in a lot of counties, a majority of the infections are people under the age of 30. And so the governor has suggested that he thinks a lot of the spread is happening in bars. They reopen their bars to 75 percent capacity. They can rethink that. They can start limiting capacity in bars. And for bars that are non-compliant with the measures, the distancing measures that they have put in place, and a lot of bars are non-compliant with those measures, they can shut them down. And so the state's going to need to take targeted actions. There's probably not a need to do a Um, sort of a statewide shutdown or rollback of all the reopening measures, but you need to target those interventions on the places where you know the spread's occurring. And first, you need to find it. A lot of states haven't really found where their spread's occurring, and they have a narrow window now to do that. Is it because we're just not contact tracing enough or, or not accurately? That's right. It's, we're, we're testing a lot, and so we're identifying the cases, but some states aren't doing good contact tracing work. So I wouldn't be surprised, for example, to see Arizona take over that contact tracing work from the counties where it currently resides and do it at a state level. The CDC has sent in some experts into these states now to help assist with that work, but some of the states haven't invested in it and stood up these um, these capabilities, and so they're a little bit behind on that. And so, again, we have a week or two. They can get control of this. 
But if they don't do it and we continue to see these cases build, this could get out of hand. So we, we need to intervene with those t- kinds of targeted measures. So obviously hospitalization numbers are rising. That comes before we really start to see the mortality rates. Dr. Ghalib, when, when do we expect to see that at this point? And what are your expectations there? Now that we have had some time for hospitals and medical professionals to learn more about this disease and how to fight it. So typically the time from um, the time from hospitalization to death is about 10 days to 14 days. And so you're going to see a spike in deaths probably two weeks out from when you're seeing these hospitalizations start to rise. That said, more of the hospitalizations are in younger people now. And so the death rate should come down because the demographic has changed. Older people are doing a better job of protecting themselves. And we're learning how to treat this a lot more effectively. Um, Anticoagulation using blood thinners was a big advance in care being more conservative about intubating people because putting people on a respirator was damaging their lungs, the use now of steroids, which was validated in the study yesterday. All of these things and the availability of the antiviral drug remdesivir, which acts directly on the virus, all of these things are going to improve care and help improve outcomes. So we should see death rates come down as a percent of people who get hospitalized. What would your advice be tonight, Dr. Gottlieb, if you live in one of the areas, one of the states where there is a hot spot, if you're over the age of 65 or or younger and have a chronic condition like diabetes or hypertension, what should you be doing right now? Limit your activity and protect yourself when you go out. I mean, try to limit the number of times you go out, the number of times you go shopping. Don't go into crowded places. Avoid restaurants, bars, settings like that. Congregate indoor settings. And when you do go out, wear a mask. And part of the challenge of these states is that they've been a little bit complacent, quite frankly. Um, they, you look at the pictures, you talk to people in these states, people don't wear masks. It's the exception that someone does wear a mask versus in a state like where I am, Connecticut tonight, I was out today. Everyone was wearing a mask. And so the etiquette is very different because states that were very hard hit, our behaviors have been conditioned differently than states that weren't hard hit at the outset and now are having really their true first wave. And so people are more complacent. That's going to be hard to recondition um, the behavior of people in those in those environments to suddenly go in and say, no, you need to start doing things that you weren't doing all along. We've seen China report uh, a number of new cases, in fact, 137, according to the Chinese officials, over the past week. And as a result, they've shut down flights, they've shut down communities, they've closed the schools. I mean, Texas, as a a contrast, is reporting thousands of cases a day. And obviously, we're not going to do anything like China. We're, We're not going to act that way. But just how many cases and rising cases can we tolerate before we have to you know, have to have to start having serious conversations at the governor state level about potentially rolling back some of the reopening at a bigger scale. Look, we've now it's it's obvious we've now made a political decision across the country. This isn't just at a national level, but a state level as well, that we're going to tolerate a high degree of infection relative to what other countries are doing. China really took a position that they're going to try to drive this down um, to the absolute minimum. They're going to try to crush their virus. Singapore took that position. South Korea took that position. Taiwan Hong Kong has, Germany has. We're now tolerating a high degree of infection. And what we're going to use as the benchmark is hospitalizations and when the healthcare system starts to get pressed. That's a very um, difficult needle to thread to try to have a level of infection that we can tolerate in terms of not pressing the healthcare system, not having excess death and disease, but not letting it get above that level, whatever that level may be, because this is an infection. This doesn't obey political rules and it doesn't obey etiquette. It's going to want to get out of control. 
I think what you might eventually see, what's going to put pressure on the political class is ultimately the healthcare sector. When doctors start to push back and say, look, we're being overburdened, um, we can't do our jobs, we're being put at risk because you won't take the decisions that you have to take to try to limit the spread, that's when you can see things start to flip. But we're not there yet. I think that's really getting into the fall. Um, we're likely to burn through this level of infection all through the summer and then in the fall see it start to build again. If you were advising the president, Dr. Gottlieb, what would you be telling him tonight? Look, I'd be telling our national leaders to try to um, empower people to engage in behaviors that are going to reduce their risk. And so try to model good behaviors, wearing, wearing of masks in public, not assembling large groups in congregate settings, trying to take it slow and not try to put the foot on the gas, but allow us to accelerate slowly uh, into this reopening. There's not much we can do short of shutting things down. There's not many things people can do to try to limit um, their risk. Wearing of masks is one of the few interventions that we can do. Trying to, you know, limit your engagements in public. Go shopping once a week instead of twice a week. Don't go into large settings indoors. These are kinds of things that you can do on an everyday basis that aren't going to really um, impact the economy. They'll allow us to get back to work, get back to shopping, get back to you know, a, some semblance of a normal economy while still limiting uh, the rate of transmission. And so I'd be encouraging those behaviors. The, our national leaders, our governors can set a really important model in terms of what they do and mm -hmm. what, they, what they're instructing people to do. Dr. Gottlieb, stand by if you would. We're going to come back to you in a few minutes, including for some of our viewer questions. Case numbers are rising in the Los Angeles area just as hospitals are reopening for elective procedures, and that could cause a bed shortage there. That's why Dr. Hector Flores of Adventist Health White Memorial Hospital wants the state to extend funding of surge hospitals past June 30th. Dr. Flores, thank you for joining us tonight. Why is this necessary to do right now? Um, thank you for having us. Uh, well, we're seeing a change in, in uh, certainly in Southern California where uh, hospitals in the first 90 days of the pandemic following the emergency declaration conserved as much space as possible. And they were at 40 to 50% occupancy, giving us confidence that there would be enough uh, beds available for a surge. What is happening, there are two parts. One is that we're seeing patients that were elective surgeries three months ago are now becoming urgencies or even emergencies. And we cannot afford to continue to have that pattern because more and more people will be hurt. Uh, the second thing is that hospitals are under tremendous financial stress and their bread and butter is elective cases, surgeries, uh, colonoscopies, other procedures that keep uh, people healthy. And if we don't open them up, uh, we could have actually have a collapse of the hospitals. So in the first 90 days, it was 40 to 50 percent occupancy. As we begin to deal with those urgent cases and what we call essential cases, hospital census now are going up to 80 percent, 85 percent. So now we're limited in the smaller number of uh, beds available for a surge. The surge hospitals were um, right. implemented in April of this year, and they actually uh, were underutilized because we had tremendous success in shelter-at-home strategies. Uh, but now that we need to open up the economy, I think we're going to see the need for those surge hospitals. Clearly, this is an issue of cost. I guess the, the pushback, doctor, would be that even, even in New York, which saw a crisis level outbreak and hospitals get full, we had the Javits Center, the big convention center, uh, the ship, you know, the, the USNS Comfort came to, to, to house the spillover cases and 
both were not really used. So, so what would be the case for L.A. to do that at this point? I think the case would be, um, despite the prohibitive cost, is that we are seeing a, an uptick in cases across the Southland. Uh, you may have heard in Ventura County, which is just north of Los Angeles, and Orange County, just south of us, when uh, they reopened their beaches, hiking trails, parks, et cetera, during the Memorial Day weekend, we're now seeing the impact of people clustering together, sadly, oftentimes not keeping that safe distance, oftentimes not using masks, uh, and they don't realize that they may be otherwise healthy and have minimal symptoms, but they're taking that disease home to the elderly relatives in their home. So uh, we need to be able to anticipate something similar in Los Angeles County. Across the country, we have seen a tremendous amount of protest, civil disturbance, People say, again, congregating, and um, sadly, that could be an exposure situation that we need to anticipate. How quickly can these surge hospitals get up and running if needed? Uh, currently, we have one surge hospital in Los Angeles County uh, scheduled to close at the end of June, uh, of June, so June 30th. So it's currently in place. So it's really making a commitment to continue to fund its availability as we see what rolls out over the next couple of weeks. Uh, there was another hospital in the uh, southern part of Los Angeles County in an area called Long Beach. It's a community hospital that was also being considered to be a surge hospital. So we're looking at those, current one being open, keeping it open, and potentially having the other one ready to go in case it's needed. Dr. Hector Flores, thank you for joining us tonight on well, this thank effort. You very much. We appreciate the time. Well, Georgia was the first state to reopen, and the governor's now allowing more businesses to do so with fewer restrictions. But in Valdosta, Georgia, right on the Florida border, cases are increasing at an alarming rate, and some businesses are shutting down for a second time. Here's CNBC's Andrea Day. In South Georgia, Lowndes County is experiencing a surge in new COVID-19 cases. Over the past few weeks, the number of cases have more than doubled. Chick-fil-A and two recently reopened local businesses have now closed their doors after exposure to the virus. Big Nick's, a family-run barbecue restaurant, recently had four employees test positive, including Big Nick himself. We reopen and, you know, you think you're kind of out of the, the water and then to be hit again. Um, I mean, it's devastating. We took all the precautions out, you know, as far as... Uh, the sneeze guards, our customers had to eat on the patio. Um, everything we had was takeout. We pushed online ordering. Just things to minimize contact, period. Gloves, um, you know, uh, you name it. And it's so unfortunate that, you know, we still caught it, you know, and after taking a lot of those uh, precautions. Nick's hired a professional cleaning crew to sanitize the restaurant and is taking aggressive steps to make sure it's safe to return before reopening. I think we are possibly already starting to see that second wave. Either that or the fact that people are are just not being safe at all. You know, a lot of people are like, I'm not scared of this and this and the third. And, and it's not even about the fear, it's about the safety, man. You know what I mean? Gotta be safe out here. Andrea Day, CNBC. Dr. Brian Dawson is the chief medical officer with South Georgia Medical Center in Valdosta. He currently has 19 confirmed COVID-19 positive cases in his hospital. Dr. Dawson, thank you for joining us tonight. Give us a sense of what you're seeing there. 
So what we're seeing in our community, uh, Lowndes County is a community, the, the county has about 118,000 residents. Uh, at this point, we do have about 758 COVID positive patients total. Uh, out of all of those patients, we've only had four deaths so far. Uh, although we are seeing this increase in the community and our hospital, we were running at one point, we're down to about eight or nine, 10 patients that were in the hospital. And right now we're up to 19. We are seeing the trend in the community for those that are coming back positive. They tend to be younger. About 53% of those patients are between the ages of 18 and 30. And we've noticed that for the inpatients that we're still seeing patients that tend to be uh, older, they have comorbid health conditions. And we're, we're seeing that it's what we had expected before with the, the previous. The, the younger patients, although they're a much larger number percentage-wise, very few of them are ending up in the hospital. And what we see is one of the, the, the capabilities we have as an organization now is that our leadership has been able to get additional capabilities for testing. We have access to testing, which we didn't have before. And with more testing, we've been able to test more patients. And therefore, I think that's why we're seeing one of the reasons we're seeing an increase in numbers. We follow the Georgia case study very closely. I mean, is it your opinion that the governor opened too soon and too aggressively? I think we in Georgia took a very uh, specific approach. It was very measured. I think it was a tiered and step by step approach moving forward. I think in retrospect that it was a move that I think was the right move. I can say that the governor in our case was very supportive of the community and helping us to have a hospital that we could use in the case of a surge. We've been, and he's done that in several communities for that matter. And in retrospect, I think that there had to be someone that moved first, and I think that was us. And again, we're seeing that the people in our community by and large are being very responsible. They're being aware. They're wanting to go out and seek testing mm -hmm. like they're supposed to. So we have been pleased in that regard. I mean, it, it, it's still we're seeing those rising cases. Do you feel, Dr. Dawson, that you have the resources you need in terms of the treatment options, the equipment to deal with these rising numbers? Yes, ma'am. In regards to our, our capability as far as our supplies at this point, we have a, based on what we had as our previous peak, we have approximately 150, uh, we're able to go up to 150% of our previous peak and we have enough supplies that will last us out to six months. We are able to use the drug remdesivir, which is the antiviral drug that was discussed further by Dr. Gottlieb. That drug, currently we have uh, seven patients in the hospital that are on that right now. We still do have additional doses that are available that have been provided for us by the state. And we also are in a uh, COVID, the convalescent plasma treatment trial that we partnered with the Mayo Clinic to be able to offer that to our patients as well. Still, Dr. Dawson, as we've been reporting, these businesses are having to shut down because of the rising cases. I mean, do you think that that is overly cautious or that's what should be happening right now? I think that's very responsible on their part to see that they do have individuals that when they are positive, they're reporting that. My understanding is that there's even some businesses with even though they've had only a few patients that or a few of their employees that are positive, they have still elected, despite that, that they want to make sure that they shut their doors or some of them gone back to carry out only instead of just continuing to practice and continuing to work. I think that's one reason that we've seen that the mortality rate in our community has been so low with only four out of 758 total cases 
compared to what we see in some of the other areas is because of that level of responsibility that the community has taken on, quite frankly. Dr. Brian Dawson, thank you for being with us tonight. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. We wish you luck in this in this fight. Let's get back to Dr. Gottlieb right now. Valdosta, obviously, Dr. Gottlieb, just one sort of small example of what many areas across the country are seeing. And it's a reminder that, you know, you don't have to have a statewide shutdown. Businesses make the decision on their own. Local communities make the decision. Local authorities make the decision. How do you make that? How do you determine whether now is the time to shut down just as you start reopening? Well, look, and that's what really drove the initial shutdown. Um, it wasn't the government shutting down the economy. It was the economy shutting down the economy. The NBA shut down the NBA. Schools were making decisions to shut down. Businesses were closing. Apple closed all its stores. And policymakers ultimately fit a policy around what was happening because businesses saw the rising cases and the rising death counts. I think what's different this time is we have much more awareness around where the virus is and is not spreading because we have better testing in place. And so we can target our interventions in counties or parts of the country where the spread's actually occurring. During the first go-around, if you think back to February and March, we didn't know where the virus was because we didn't have any testing in place. And so now we have that capacity. Counties are going to need to make decisions on their own. The districts are going to have to make it on, uh, about schools. Um, you know, chain stores in those regions are going to have to make decisions about keeping businesses open or closed. In places where there's hot spots, businesses should think about trying to roll back some of the openings that have taken place. It's not, it's not you know, hundreds of counties where you're seeing these hot spots. Mm. It's isolated places around the country. In Texas, it's Houston and Austin primarily, and a little bit in Dallas. Dr. Gottlieb, now that we are about four months into this crisis, what research has been done and what, what have you seen in patients that have recovered from COVID-19? Any, any long-term health impact or, or things that we should be watching on that front? Well, we, we're seeing some post-viral syndromes. We don't really, we can't really characterize it yet. Certainly in the pediatric cases, there seems to be something that looks like an autoimmune type of phenomena, probably a rare occurrence. There's probably been a lot of children infected with coronavirus, and the percentage that actually developed that syndrome, a Kawasaki-like syndrome, some, an autoimmune uh, inflammatory condition, probably is a small number in terms of the total number that were exposed and infected with the virus. And in adults, we're also seeing some post-viral type of syndromes, not that atypical when you have a viral epidemic that you see some incidence of post-viral syndromes that, that seem neurological in their origin and, and um, cause, can cause things like fatigue. And coronavirus does seem to affect uh, the nervous system. The loss of smell and taste as a feature of this virus does seem like some kind of impact on the nervous system. Is there any way to, to treat that ultimately? Not that we know of. Um, you know, there's other, there's other uh, post-viral syndromes that we're aware of with other viruses that are rare, um, that are treated with certain drugs, in many cases not effectively, sometimes steroids, for example. Um, but in this mm -hmm. instance, we haven't really characterized these um, syndromes, let alone thought about how to treat them. They do seem uncommon at this point. We've had a lot of coronavirus infection around this country, um, millions of cases, mil uh, two million identified and, and probably millions more, maybe 15 or 20 million people infected at this point. Um, and so the actual percentage that seem to have some residual syndrome seems to be a small number of the total. Want to get to some of our viewer tweets tonight. We have a few good ones, Dr. Gottlieb. This from Kay Bador, something that I've wondered about as well. Retakeout food. 
Um, our viewer wants to know how long does coronavirus live on food that unmasked employees contaminate with saliva particles by talking over the food? Well, first of all, not long. It wouldn't live on that kind of a surface long. But second of all, there's no evidence that it spreads um, orally. So it's not like a norovirus or a rotavirus where you can um, contract it by ingesting it. So Jeff in Chicago has, has one. I live in Chicago, he says, but visited Dallas this past weekend. And there's a noticeable difference. And Dr. Gottlieb, you talked about this in mask wearing and distancing. Moving into the fall, how likely is it that outbreaks stay localized and regional within the U.S.? I think we face a lot of risk in the fall that we're going to have a significant second wave, especially as this collides with flu season. Um, if, you know, only uh, 10 or 15 percent of the population has been exposed to coronavirus by the time we get into the fall, which is probably where we're going to be, there's going to be a sizable portion of the population that's going to be vulnerable to this, and we could see a sizable second wave. John wants to know, I saw a stat stating wearing masks reduces infection by 40 percent. Why so low? How do you get infected when wearing a mask? Well, it depends on the quality of the mask. And there's different studies showing a higher level of, of protection. Um, you know, if we had everyone wearing masks, if 60 percent of the population wore masks that were 60 percent effective, you could effectively end the epidemic based on some modeling that's done. Um, people don't wear masks appropriately. Not everyone has high-quality masks. So a level 3 procedure mask is better than a cloth mask. An N95 mask is better than a level 3 procedure mask. There's more mask supply in the market. So people can go out and try to get higher-quality masks right now. And one more that, that, that I have for you, Dr. Gottlieb. Everybody wants to boost their immunity right now and, and protect themselves. We have seen some studies that, you know, patients that get very sick have vitamin D deficiencies. For people like me that have never have time to go out into the sun, should I be doing that? Or are there any other supplements that you are taking and that people should be taking to protect themselves? So the evidence around vitamin D uh, isn't very firm, but what it suggests is that if you're deficient in vitamin D, you appear to be more susceptible to coronavirus, um, but vitamin D itself isn't protective. So it's only helpful if you're deficient to take a supplement. So, you know, if, I think if you're vitamin D deficient, there's a lot of reasons to take a vitamin D supplement. This would be one of them. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, thank you very much for joining us tonight, taking all the questions. Thanks a lot. Another big story developing tonight. New reports were closing in on a deal that could bring baseball back. CNBC.com's Jabari Young had some new reporting and joins us live tonight. Jabari, what have you learned? Well, you know, as Rob Manfred come out, uh, you know, the commissioner of uh, Major League Baseball came out and said, you know, he and Tony Clark uh, basically met last night in Phoenix and they you know, came up with a framework of which they feel that both their constituencies uh, will pass. You know, in that framework, uh, you know, you have reports standing some around the 60 plus games. It still has to be negotiated, but at least they have some type of framework, again, uh, that they think that they can agree on. Maybe a little bit of, of tweaking here and there. And it was needed. Listen, sports is a whole bunch of drama. Why have the drama? You need the drama for it to come back. Right. And MLB gave you plenty of drama. Uh, I never thought at one point that baseball was going to be uh, missed at all. Uh, you just you knew this was going to happen. You knew it was going to get ugly because, it's, you know, owners and players have a history of it getting ugly. But when you know, when you talk to the greats of the game, guys like Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, and guys who've been around the game, you never got the sense that they were going to miss any baseball. Credit to Rob Manfred and Tony Clark for actually sitting down like adults and getting it done. 
<laughs> like adults. So, so what would a season actually look like under these terms? Well, again, you know, right now you have reports out there that it's saying 60 plus games. So, you know, it's not going to be anything long, uh, but you get it in, you get it out. They're going to do the extended playoffs. Uh, and, and obviously you take that extended playoffs and you try to model that uh, because, you know, the MLB is going to try to get uh, more playoff games in the future, especially since they just agreed to a three billion dollar deal with Turner Sports. And they have another deal coming up with ESPN. And he disagreed to their Fox Sports deal last year. So they got a lot riding on the line in the future. That's why you had to get one. Of, you had to get this deal done because you cannot risk any damage to your into your game. Remember, baseball not only has to get this done, they got a CBA, a collective bargaining agreement that they still got to get done at before the 21-22 uh, season begins. So, you know, they still got a lot of work to do to make sure that these two sides not only can get play, play a season this year and next, but beyond. And I think, obviously, you, the fact that they were able to come together and get this done can only mean good things to come for them to get that CBA done and keep baseball going for the long haul. Yeah, they're also going to have to compete with NBA and golf and tennis and all the other sports coming back hopefully this summer. Jabbar Young, thank you very much for joining us with your reporting. Anytime. Here's what else is coming up tonight on this CNBC special report. Straight ahead, a real sign of what's really moving in the great American economy. See what's coming back and what isn't next. And what you should expect on your next visit to the dentist. Plus... Learn how to do things that we never even imagined that we could do. Big changes on Main Street USA. Before the break, pictures from around the country on Wednesday night, June 17th. On day 171 of the crisis, here are some more headlines on the virus. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell says the circulation of physical coins ground to a halt during the outbreak, causing a shortage as more Americans turn to contactless payments. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo says New York City is scheduled to move into phase two of its reopening, which does include outdoor dining, on Monday. And Gilead says it plans to test remdesivir in children with moderate to severe cases of COVID. Trucks, trains, and international shipping data. They can all give us important clues about the state of the economy. Our Frank Holland is here to explain what the numbers are telling us about where we stand right now. Frank. Hey, good evening. So demand for trucking, it increased 9% last week, but that's after it spiked 94% last month. With trucks delivering more than 70% of everything that we all buy in stores, it's really an encouraging sign as the economy continues to reopen and as we head into the second half of the year. Drilling down into trucking, demand for industrial trucking and trucking of manufacturing goods, that spiked 134% last month, a possible indicator that domestic production is ramping back up. The most recent train data, however, not quite as encouraging, but still showing signs of recovery in the freight market as declines of volumes lessened over the recent months. Still, you have to see here that volumes are down by double digits. 
Container shipping, which is largely consumer goods. A similar story. Shipments from Asia to the West Coast still declining year over year, but showing signs of going in a positive direction from May to July. Also, you have to look at this. The BDRY ETF, that's the proxy for global shipping rates of industrial products, spiking over 80% last month. Another potential indicator that global production is also ramping back up. Back over to you. On on trucking, Frank, is, is there any indication of whether it's online shopping or actual activity because of states reopening? Just wondering, because as someone who gets a lot of packages that come from trucks. <laughs> Tonight, what your next trip to the dentist is likely to look like. And three unique businesses in one historic city's main street with unique solutions to the common problem for businesses across the nation. This CNBC special report continues. Here's Sarah Eisen. Welcome back, everyone. Top CEOs and executives on CNBC today discussing the path forward for business, the economy, and the markets following the pandemic. Right now, we're um, hopeful that we'll have a, a, a strong recovery, but we're planning multiple scenarios to make sure that the, the uh, company, we're, that we're strong from a business perspective and can weather whatever outcome. But right now, we're cautiously optimistic. Our collections have been extremely high. We've been collecting more than 97% of our, our rents, so we're very happy about that. Um, and uh, most, most tenants want to get back to the office, so they're, they're looking forward to welcoming back their employees. My confidence is rising quite rapidly that this is in fact becoming uh, the fourth real McCoy bubble of my investment career. Doesn't mean it won't go on, by the way. The great bubbles can go on a long time and inflict a lot of pain. But at least I think we know now that we're in one. And the chutzpah involved in, in having a bubble at a time of massive economic and financial uncertainty is substantial. The dental industry is emerging from a brutal few months. In March and April, half of all dental workers lost their jobs while practices scrambled to get safety procedures in place. Dr. Ross Anderson is with Lake Superior Dental in Duluth, Minnesota. Dr. Anderson, thanks for joining us. How different is it going to be to go to the dentist during this COVID age right now? Well, it's certainly a change of pace from what we used to be doing. Uh, everything takes a little bit longer to do, getting the patients in the door and getting all of our new PPE on. Um, so things are taking certainly longer, and uh, we'll get there. It's just going to take us a little bit of time. You know, it's well believed that dentists in particular are at higher risk of contracting the virus because of the close contact that you have to have to, to people's faces and to their saliva. How are you keeping yourself safe while you know spraying inside their mouth? So that has been one of the big things is dealing with the, the dental aerosol um, that they talk about. And, you know, we have the standard PPE that the CDC and the ADA has, has recommended that we use. Everybody's wearing gowns and face shields and we wear an N95 mask and then we put another mask over that one. And then in addition, what, what we decided to do was install a actual filtration system throughout the whole office. Um, and what it does is it, it works directly at the source of where the aerosols are being generated. And then it goes through 
um, kind of a whole office HVAC system that has HEPA hmm. filters and uh, UV lights as well. Interesting. What are you seeing, doctor, from the patients right now? Are they coming back after this period of lockdown in any sort of normal the- numbers? Yeah, so right now we had such a backlog from being closed down for, you know, two and a half months, basically. Um, we saw very urgent emergencies during our, our shutdown time. Um, but, uh, you know, right now people are coming back because we have a lot of urgent needs and emergent needs are still kind of backlog from that time we're catching up on. And we also had a whole group of patients that were already scheduled um, in March and April. And so we're trying to get caught up on all those patients at this time as well. What are some of your top patient concerns that you're hearing? Uh, you know, for the most part, patients' concerns are just a matter of getting in and getting their, you know, the urgent needs taken care of. Um, people haven't been overly concerned in regards to the COVID aspect. Um, they know we're taking all the possible precautions that we can, we can take right now. Um, so people feel safe, um, coming into the office, um, and we're doing everything we can. For those that, that aren't coming back and have missed a, a few months or a longer period of going to the dentist, what are some of the risks that that could cause? So there's, Certainly the people there that, you know, if they have an abscess tooth, for instance, and they've been putting it off or it happened during the shutdown time, um, unfortunately, there were cases where, you know, we have to use antibiotics, even though we wanted to just get the tooth taken care of. Um, the antibiotics can make you feel better, but then people miss coming in and that, that abscess that can come back again. And it can be worse the second time it comes back. So then we got to, you know, make time and, and try to get people in as best we can to get those taken care of. Dr. Anderson, thank you for joining us tonight and good luck with the continued reopening there. Thank you very much. We've got a lot more tonight on this CNBC special report. It's going to be a very tough road, but... I feel like we'll be on the other side of this. We'll take you to one of this country's oldest main streets as they deal with the pandemic, a change to their way of life, and a lot more. Before the break, our world on the 171st day of this global pandemic. Like most of the country, many Main Street businesses in Charleston, South Carolina, are open again. But this week, at least six Charleston restaurants have closed again after workers got sick. Tonight, CNBC's Andrea Day on how other businesses trying to stay open are safely doing business on a Main Street in crisis. Charleston's a beautiful, amazing, friendly place. There are so many lively businesses. It's really just a little piece of paradise. When you know, like, your booties to the fire, you just start figuring things out. The virtual option literally was a lifesaver for our business. It's nice because they can actually shout out or post a comment. We 
normally um, in a class we have 22 people. However, with COVID, we are, if you can see these little spots all around the room, we've reduced it down to six people per class. You know, six people is just enough to keep the lights turned on. We really need to be able to have more people in here, but you can't do that at the sake of safety. So we have about 45 minutes in between our classes right now so that we can make sure that we get a thorough cleaning on everything. Not far from the studio, a restaurant also struggles to make ends meet. We pulled everything that my parents had ever worked for and everything that I had ever worked for and threw it in a chubby fish. You know, this had been a dream of all of ours for a long time. Pre-pandemic, we were doing anywhere between 130 to 140 people on a nightly basis roughly $10,000, then it all just kind of crashed. Good night for us right now is about $1,000. Really, the only thing that makes that work for us is, is hope, honestly. A nearby real estate broker is hoping for the best as well. We definitely saw a big drop off in showings. A lot of people took their homes off the market. We have been trying to do as many virtual and FaceTime showings as possible. And if we are showing a house that's occupied or we have people with us, we definitely wear masks. We try and ask the sellers to keep all of the lights on before we come in and then we leave them that way. So we're not going around with our grubby hands touching everybody's light fixtures. Learn how to do things that we never even imagined that we could do. And I think there's a sense of confidence and a sense of we got this. It's going to be a very tough road, but... I feel like we'll we'll be on the other side of this. You look back to the roots of where the city's come from, and it has been through so much, and it will get through this as well. For CNBC, I'm Andrea Day. Tonight's top stories and disrupting the shipping and storage industry next. This week, CNBC releases the Disruptor 50 list, companies shaking up their space. Julia Borston reports on one company tackling the shipping and warehouse business. The explosion of e-commerce means demand for warehouse automation is projected to top $25 billion in five years, double the size of the market back in 2018. Adabotics is poised to capture that growth. Its robotic warehousing and fulfillment system shrinks the footprint of a massive warehouse into an office building by making storage vertical, and it uses machine learning to determine where to store items and what to stock. Our combination of, of unique high-density storage and 3D robotics allows us to take a warehouse and put it into 15% of the space of traditional systems. Nordstrom's partnered with Adabotics in December using its supply chain technology to slash its warehouse space and bring fulfillment closer to the consumer. The company aims to cut costs and carbon footprint for Nordstrom's along with companies distributing food to restaurants, auto parts, beauty supplies and footwear. Coming out of the, the backside of COVID, uh, we now ourselves are looking at growth numbers that we were predicting for four or five years in the future. In fact, inbound requests from retailers grew by four times since coronavirus. And now Adabotics is in talks with a number of grocery delivery companies as it looks to help retailers keep up with Amazon's speedy delivery. Julia Borston, CNBC. And tune in to CNBC tomorrow for interviews with more of this year's disruptors. 
On day 171 of the coronavirus crisis, here are the latest headlines for you. Housing starts in May, rising less than expected, but permits for future construction spiked, suggesting the housing market might be improving. The World Health Organization is dropping the malaria drug hydroxychloroquine from its study looking for potential treatments. And the Dow and the S&P 500 snap three-day win streaks. Dow futures suggesting a lower open tomorrow morning. For all of us here at CNBC, I'm Sarah Eisen. Be sure to tune in. Shark Take is next.